in Rashid, in chapter 50, verse 23, a very interesting statement is made. Bayar Yosef Ephraim b'nei Shleshim, gam b'nei Machir ben Menasha, yuldu al birchei Yosef. Yosef lived to see children of the third generation of Ephraim. The children of Machir, son of Menasha, were likewise born upon Yosef's knees. So the weird thing is, first of all, we're talking about third and fourth generations being born. And we're also talking about what does it mean that they're born upon Joseph's knees? In the one of the Aramaic translations, the Targum Yonatan, they were circumcised upon his knees. So they bring it into Jewish ritual. Yosef got to be the sandak at the brises for these great-grandchildren, grandchildren. We're not exactly sure because there's debate on the rabbis is where we're talking about three generations, four generations. Ibn Ezra basically agrees. Or some of the rabbis wonder, does it go back to the idea of the blessing? You know, are they getting a blessing a blessing upon the knees? Is that what's going on? Much of the rest of the rabbinic discussion is about who these generations became. Spoiler alert, they led directly to Tzalafachad, or the daughters of Tzalafachad. And also, how many generations are we talking about here, his great-grandchildren or not? When you think about it, this appears to be not only the only reference to being a great-grandparent in Torah, but apparently the only reference to being a grandparent. Rashi, who is not the most sentimental of commentators, to me is a little sentimental here, and I love it. Rashi disagrees with the other commentators, but it means that he was born upon Yosef's knees are, and he puts it really tersely, he brought them up upon his knees. He co-raised them. He got to be another, he, he got to live with them and enjoy their company through, their, through his life. So it's not about he got to be there to Sandak. He got to be a grandparent. He got to be a great grandparent and he got to watch them to grow up. Think about how rare this is. Sarah didn't live to see Yitzchak get married and Avraham only lived that far. Yitzchak and Rivka don't meet their grandchildren. Even after this parasha, we'll already have next week Moshe and Sipor have their son Gershon, and the second son pops up later. And by all accounts, Moshe is an absentee father, even to them, likely the substance by rabbinic tradition of Miriam's slander against her brother, let alone having any relationship with his grandchildren. It is in today's parasha that we have the extraordinary exception to the rest of the Torah narrative, a mention of being a grandparent and even a great-grandparent. And in what is equally extraordinary to me, we have Rashi defending the sentimentality of it. Rashi says, no, it's about these kids getting to grow up with grandparents. What is growing old like? The name of today's parasha invites us to think about that. Avayechi, and he lived. We know in our Jewish literacy that as soon as you hear the words, someone's going to die, we're going to get a death scene. <laughs> refers to Yaakov's getting to live an additional measure of years in Egypt, years that seem to be unexpected or not. Those extra years that are preceded by Yaakov expressing his enigmatic attitude to longevity upon his moment of meeting Pharaoh. It's a big deal to have a Hebrew actually get an audience before Pharaoh. And every time someone speaks from Joseph's family, they just embarrass him. So he finally gets to meet Yaakov, the father, and it's in Breshi 47, verses 8 to 9. And Pharaoh said to Yaakov, how many are the days of your years? A pretty simple question, very polite. How old are you? 
Yaakov said, the days of my years of sojourn are 130. The days of my years have been few and miserable. This seems to be a twist on Hobbes' famous dictum. If Hobbes' version is life is nasty, brutish, and short, Yaakov's is the Jewish version. No, life is nasty, brutish, and long. The rabbis can't help wondering why Yaakov would say such a thing. <laughs> and especially at this high-powered moment before Pharaoh. And those of us used to saying inappropriate things at the most august of moments may not be so phased, but the rabbis are certainly interested. They derive that he's saying that his years have been miserable, but he is wondering what these next years will be like. It hasn't been so great so far. So the question is, what should the next years be like? They say he's depressed. He won't live as long as his ancestors, but he is curious what the next phase will be like. Interestingly, the question of what the next phase of one's life could be like is answered in the Parsha, but not in the description of Yaakov's life. But it's almost immediately by the recounting of Yosef's later years and Yosef's deaths. It's like a magical realism novel. The existential question Yaakov answered suddenly were like a whole decades and decades and decades and decades later. And the question's being answered with the sun. In the narrative, it's almost a magical passing of years. So put another way, Yaakov represents to the rabbis what it means to work for a future, working hard. Yaakov has anxiety, he has pain, he does have hard work. He's all about, he's the guy who about the birthright was saying, I know our, this is the rabbinic tradition. I know our family is totally impoverished and we look like we have no future. So who cares about selling a birthright, a birth, an inheritance of what? He's like, I'm going to make that inheritance worth something. And he goes and works for 14 years for a brutal boss. And those people who've had bad bosses, they know what that's like. And to get the marriage he wanted. And then he builds the family. And then he works for that boss to, to basically amass an entire fortune and a tribe. He has been working hard his whole life. And he says, I've been depressed the whole time. I've been sad. I've been anxious. It's been miserable. So what am I working for? What comes next for me? Yaakov represents working the nasty, brutish, and long days in order to marry the person you love, in order to build up a flock and inheritance to pass on, in order to build up a family and a tribe. But we're still unsure whether he can take pleasure in these final years. And then we have Yosef. And the experience of Yosef maybe answers the question. He spends his life, as Rashi says, getting to raise grandchildren and great-grandchildren. I was struck back in 2018 in a New York Times article, or it wasn't an article, really just a, like a, it was a blog entry by Jim Solish. It was entitled, The Particular Joy of Being a Grandparent. It says, he's, I've raised five children, but I've never felt this pure, unfettered happiness. He writes, I've raised children, five of them. I've held my own babies in their first minutes of life. I have felt that shock of recognition. Wow. I have cavelled. I guess I know what religion is. I've cavelled at the things my babies did that all babies do. But I've never felt this thing that stopped my brain, that put all plans on hold, that rendered me dumb. I've had glimpses of this thing, but this was my first uninterrupted hour of it. In the first moments of my own children's lives, I couldn't turn my brain off. When we be able to leave the hospital? I'm supposed to now be checking whether the skin is yellow. We're trying to make sure that he's taken to breastfeeding properly. Um, should I get my parents from the waiting room now or should I wait for later? Does my wife need another blanket? Am I attending enough to her? Does the baby look like her brothers? What were we all thinking? 
Becoming a father was a lot like becoming a German shepherd. If German shepherds were capable of constantly calculating the risks of SIDS and peanut allergies. Sure, I spent time staring at Zach's beautiful sleeping face, but my joy was always crowded with more questions. Namely, what am I supposed to be doing next? And what do you need next, little guy? When my second child came, I should have been more relaxed. After all, I sort of knew what I was doing now. But whenever I held him, I started to get lost in his impossibly perfect newness. And then I would remember that his older brother was pulling down the chest of drawers and needed to be changed. And I had to move on. Worry, vigilance. These are the things that keep us from experiencing rapture. But these are also the things that keep children alive. But that's not my job as a grandparent. I'm sure I'll have lots of chances to exercise my highly advanced worrying skills. Remember, the rabbis see Yaakov as a worrier, but not a bad worrier, like a good worrier. He has a lot to worry about, and he's actually amazingly successful at putting together the things he needs to do of saving his family and building the tribe. And so I'm sure I'll have more chances to exercise my advanced worrying skills, but I will always be a second line of defense. I'll always be a bench player. I know that their parents will watch them and sleep and weigh the newest research. They will never have a moment as free as the free hour that I have with my grandchildren. But in keeping her alive, they will become fully alive. They will feel the awesome power of joy tinged with vulnerability. Only when you have everything to lose do you have everything. And that's what parenting teaches you. And now that I'm a grandparent, I look forward to learning more about this other kind of joy. Interestingly, the rabbis don't stop. I mean, not the rabbis, the Torah doesn't stop with just you get to hold your grandchildren. And then a few years later, a deathbed scene. Great-grandchildren getting to, as Rashi says, a life experience of getting to be there as they grow up and maybe have children themselves and maybe those children. And this reminded me of research that just came out and was published in New York Times in September of uh, this this past year. It's about grandchildren who are in their 20s and early 30s are increasingly living with a grandparent. The research says that once the, grand, once the grandchildren are older, skipped generation relationships are stronger because the grandchildren and grandparents can approach each other as individuals. Grandparents are not seen as authority figures to be overcome. And yet, grandchildren aren't viewed as tots needing guidance and further lectures. Dr. Gail Saltz, um, host of the podcast, How Can I Help? Associate Professor of Psychiatry, writes, the grandparent-grandchild relationship is less fraught. It's different from a parent-child relationship where it's hard to move into the adult space. And here, this is a day where we're celebrating the move into the adult space. It's hard for a parent not to parent. And young adults often don't want to be parented. But grandchildren, as they grow into their 20s, they have their own needs, and so do their grand the grandchildren and the grandparents. Grandchildren, often in low-paying, entry-level jobs, are looking for deeply affordable housing with very tolerant landlords. And the grandparents have their own needs and own that can be met. Frankly, grandchildren can demystify smartphones, Twitters, and paying bills online. They can feel useful in the relationship, and they can help the person that they love. Moreover, they get to spend time appreciating a perspective. As the article points out, pardon me, 
as the article points out, um, those in their early 20s don't have the experience to know that life will go on when they're experiencing stress. Think of Yaakov at stress, and then he has, what is this period about? The grandparents and great-grandparents can provide that context. We've survived disasters before. We've survived terrible bosses before. We've survived diseases before. We've survived raising children before. We've survived recessions before. Rachel Margolis from the University of Western Ontario writes, the idea of young adults living with grandparents really solves a lot of social issues. Most older adults want to age in place and they need help to do so. And this beautiful relationship can combine. And I'm thinking of the people who are child-free and I want to be inclusive of them. Many people don't have grandchildren or great-grandchildren. So I want to just emphasize that anthropologically, skipping that immediate parent generation and having someone from the, the generation that is in retirement is an incredibly powerful bond. It could be a mentor at a university or in a lab, someone who's coming in but no longer has the responsibilities of the grant writing. It could be an uncle or aunt or great uncle or an aunt. It could be a former teacher. It could be someone at work who is retiring but stays on to mentor another. So I just want to make sure I'm inclusive of everyone and having that connection that the Torah is still speaking to that does not have to be one of that immediate lineage. The words of 20-year-old Megan Schiffer. She said, I chose to do this because honestly, my grandmother has always been one of my favorite people.